First Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You wouldn't guess from these verses that Peter wrote a letter to believers who were suffering persecution. You might hear these words and think of them more like a a Thanksgiving card, something that you might have sent to family or friends uh, last week, celebrating the many things that you have to be grateful for. But the church that Peter wrote to was indeed suffering intense persecution. And it's helpful for you to know that so that you can understand and apply this passage to yourselves. Peter doesn't waste any time to get to the point. The point is that the trials that you face can never separate you from the love of God. In fact, whatever you may face for Christ's sake, it is not worthy to be compared with the glorious blessing conferred upon you by Christ. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 18. Let me read that again. Whatever you may suffer for Christ's sake, it is not worthy to be compared with the glorious blessing conferred upon you by God in Christ. Therefore, bless God. We do suffer trials. But the trials that we face can never be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Therefore, bless God. Before I go on to look at the text, you might notice that my approach to these verses is different than my sermons in 1 Samuel. Those are are historic books of history. They trace a certain story in them. And they tell about God's mercy and promises in the lives of Samuel and David. And they elicit a certain approach to preaching those narratives. This passage is different, isn't it? This is a letter, and it's full of teaching and exhortation. So to understand the message and to apply it means that it will often be a different approach. It will take shorter portions of, of the passages. And I will, like I do today, often work through those passages verse by verse and sometimes even pausing on word by word so that you can understand what is going on. You can see that even reflected in the the notes and the outline that I give to you on the back of the bulletin, that it looks a little different. That's because there's a logical sequence that I've tried to represent by the indents. It's one long sentence here that Peter is using, but it's all tied together in an important way. I want you to understand that so that you can grasp what my intent is. I, I do want you to recognize the context of these 
precious promises in the midst of suffering so that you will know that they are light and momentary and that they cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we'll begin with the first words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By way, just take note of the continued emphasis on the Trinity again, just like we saw last week. But Peter says, blessed be God. And we're familiar with the language of the Psalms. They say, blessed be the Lord, my rock, my refuge. Blessed be his name forever and ever. It begs the question, well, what does it mean to bless the Lord? The word has come into English as as the word eulogy. You might recognize that as coming from a funeral service where someone speaks well of the loved one who has passed away. That's the idea of this word as well, that we speak well of God. Not one who has passed away, obviously, but we are speaking well. We're telling how great God is. Today we might, we might say, uh, God is awesome. And let me tell you why. And so, as you look at Peter's words, that's what he is doing. God is to be praised, and here's why. And then he launches into those reasons, this this long interconnected verse that is just fascinating and giving you reasons to recognize why God ought to be praised. And that light, you should hear it as part of our act of worship, part of the praise that we give God. When we say, blessed be God, We are worshiping him. And the rest of the sermon now is going to look at all of the reasons that Peter gives that God ought to be blessed, that God ought to be praised. So we begin just following the words that are given to us here. Blessed be God because he has acted according to his abundant mercy. I want you to notice here that that. Peter once more picks up a really deep theological concept and uses it in a way to help you to worship the Lord. He speaks about God's abundant mercy. And for Peter, as he speaks of this, he would be familiar with the way in which God showed mercy in the Old Testament and how God even revealed himself as being a God of mercy. In fact, the Lord revealed himself and told his name to Moses and used mercy as part of the name that he took for himself so that Moses and all of us would understand his character. Listen to what he says as he reveals himself to Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness. And here it uses the word for mercy again. Abounding in mercy and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. 
forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Three times God reveals his name as being mercy. Three times God says that he is abundant in mercy. So what is mercy? We'll just pause here and, and, and think about that word. Because of our sins, it would be just for God to punish us forever and ever. It would be just. But God is mercy. God is abundant in mercy. He withholds the penalty that we deserve because of our sins. And he puts that punishment on his son, Jesus Christ, who had never sinned. Because of what Jesus has done for us, God can show mercy to us who are sinners. Some have called this the great exchange that the Lord Jesus takes from us our sin. He bears that burden and punishment on the cross. And he gives to us in exchange something glorious. He gives us life everlasting. Something completely unlooked for and undeserved. He has shown us mercy. And the point that Peter is making is that in the midst of your troubles, you need to remember that God has shown you mercy. He has. He has shown you mercy. What can man do to you? What can anyone do to you if God himself has said, I show you mercy? I forgive your sins in Jesus Christ. Then everything, the sufferings of this present life, the afflictions that you go through, the accusations of the enemy, they all pale in comparison to the promise of God and the treasure that is the mercy he shows you in Jesus Christ. And that's just the first reason that Peter gives to say, blessed be God. And if your soul is not moved by any of these points along the way, uh, you need to think a little more deeply about your relationship to God in Christ. You have received mercy. Blessed be God. Not only that, but God has begotten us again. He has begotten us again. You might be more familiar with the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. I'm convinced here that Peter is echoing the, this teaching that he had, had observed from Jesus. Jesus. 
and using the, the words and the language because he had walked and talked with Jesus and then saw it acted out on the cross. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the connection here is that what Peter says is, by his mercy, God has caused you to be born again. Think about what Jesus Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But the promise is that in Christ, he causes you to have that life everlasting. The Father, by his life-giving spirit, has applied to you the work of the Son, so that you pass from death to life. You are born again, blessed be God. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sin, completely unaware of that penalty against you, completely unmoved by it, because your heart is dead and like a stone. But God has acted to cause you to be born again. Born again to what? Well, there are three things that Peter lists here. He says that you are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, and to salvation. I'm going to take those one at a time. You're begotten again or born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered the death that you and I deserve. That is God's mercy to us. When he rose from the dead, he demonstrated his power over sin and death. That, that resurrection of Jesus Christ is a, is a stamp of approval that the Father gave, that he accepted the sacrifice of the Son, that he accepted his obedience. Here, think of the language of verse 2 in this chapter, that the Father has accepted the obedience and the sprinkled blood of the Son. One commentator puts it this way, that the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because it proves that death is not the last word. Death could not hold him. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Death could not hold him. And it cannot hold you either. Just think about that. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he declared for all of history his authority over sin and Satan and death. Death could not hold him. And death does not have the last word. All too often, we think of death as the period at the end of a life, the period at the end of a sentence. But it is not the end. It is not the victor. Jesus is the victor. 
And by his resurrection, he proclaims that victory. Not just for himself, but for all of you who believe in Jesus. For all of you who have entrusted your souls to him, you have that promise of the resurrection for yourself too. As surely as Jesus is raised from the dead, you will be too. And you will enjoy an eternity in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have been born again to this living hope. Blessed be God. Blessed be our Savior. You are begotten again, secondly, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Peter just can't contain himself with the glory of what has been given to us. He calls it an inheritance. And the Bible often uses that concept. It often speaks about our heritage. It speaks about the inheritance that is given to us. In our world, an inheritance is something like a gift handed down from parents to their children. After, uh, after our parents die, they sometimes will leave an inheritance for us. And for the children, it might be helpful for you to think about it in this way. Think about the gifts that you give or that you receive at Christmas time. Let me ask you, do you do anything to deserve those gifts that you get from your parents? Do you have to earn it from them? Do they keep a, a log and say, well, once you, once you have made your bed this many times, then you earn this Christmas gift? To put it in a provocative way, does it matter if you're naughty or nice? <laughs> well, if it really is a gift, then no. It doesn't. It doesn't depend on you. Because it's a gift that is freely given. In fact, if you think about it, if God were to say, you have to do something to deserve this, it would no longer be a gift. It would no longer be an inheritance. It would be a wage. But that's not what God gives you. He gives you a gift that is freely given to you. And in mercy, God has done this. In mercy, he has given you a gift of everlasting life that you have done nothing to deserve, nothing to earn. God gives it to you freely based on the fact that he loves you. Blessed be God, right? And Peter goes on to describe this inheritance. 
It is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven, who are kept by God. So here's why I, I, I just have to go word by word here. The inheritance cannot be corrupted. This means that heaven and your place in it never wears out. Everything I touch, everything you touch, tends to break down. It breaks down because it wears out over time. Everyone who works on their car understands this. Everyone who, who, uh, whose washing machine goes on the fritz can relate with this. Everything we touch turns to dust eventually. Your inheritance never does. It can't be defiled. That means that heaven can't be polluted. It especially can't be polluted by sin. Once more, I think of everything I touch. Everything I touch becomes dirty because of the presence of sin still in my life. And if heaven was left in my hands, I would spoil it. Surely I would spoil it because of my sin. But not so with God's gift. Heaven is always free of sin. And in heaven, you will always be free of sin. Heaven does not fade away. And similar to previous words, it means that the value of heaven lasts forever. The flowers and their beauty fade away, but the beauty of heaven never fades. It is reserved in heaven for you. If you have a reservation in a hotel room, that means that when you get there, the room is ready. Or it should be. (laughs) In the perfect world, uh, your reservations are always honored and the room is perfect. Uh, Well, in God's economy, in, in God's heaven, your room is reserved and it is perfect. In the words of Jesus In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. That's the inheritance that he has. A reservation, an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. It is reserved in heaven for those who are kept by the power of God through faith. What Peter does here is is something fascinating in that up to this point, he's been talking about the treasure of heaven, the the inheritance that God has for you. And it uh, the implication is that God guards that inheritance. Now he turns and he says he guards you as well. He guards you so that you will come safely to that inheritance. He will guard you so that you do not fall away. And he'll bring you to that promise that he has made. That's received through faith, as Peter says, the instrument of receiving the gift. And that instrument is believing and receiving and resting in Jesus as your savior. And even that gift is a 
Even that faith is a gift of God. He gives you an inheritance. And this afternoon, as you think about the troubles that you're going through, pause and consider the inheritance and each of these words that describe it. And pray that the Lord would elevate your sight, elevate your heart to think about who you are in Christ. The inheritance he has promised and his keeping of you. I trust that you will find that the troubles that you face will be incomparable to what Jesus has in heaven reserved for you. There's a third thing that you're born again to. You are born again through faith for salvation, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I said the Bible uses inheritance a lot. Well, the Bible uses the word salvation even more. We use it a lot too because it's such a precious word. I like the way that the devotional table talk describes it. A really helpful tool, by the way. At Table Talk, it says salvation is God's work of rescuing a sinner from the guilt and pollution of sin, restoring a sinner to a right relationship with God, and making the sinner an adopted heir of the new heavens and earth. We are saved from the penalty that we deserve. We are saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from hell, to put it in shorthand. And we're saved to heaven. Peter goes on to say that this salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, uh, there are other places in scripture where, where Paul and other writers talk about how we are already saved. And Peter's not saying that, that we're not saved until we reach the end. Instead, he's saying that there's something more, that there's something we receive now already, and he's been meditating on that up to this point, but he's saying there's something more. There's a consummation. There's a, a longing for that something more that we go through up, throughout the rest of our lives. In the end, Jesus welcomes you into heaven. It's a citizenship that you have right now, but as pilgrims, we are still on this journey. But that pilgrim journey will surely lead you before the face of God, where he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that is yours in Christ. It is a joy that you have now, but a joy that will be perfected in heaven. You already receive and possess that gift of salvation. And in the end, you will have that life filled to overflowing. So in conclusion, let me urge you to think about this passage in two ways. The first is to ask, is this gift mine? Have I received the forgiveness of sins? 
Is this a promise that I can say I have received from Jesus Christ? And I'll turn that around by asking you, what must I do to be saved? That's a question that others have asked. In fact, we hear it in the Bible. What must I do to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the punishments that our sin deserved. Saved from the wrath and curse of God. Saved from the power of that sin that enslaves us all through our lives. Saved from the fear of death. From the greater terror of hell. Knowing what uh, truly threatens you. An eternal punishment against sin. Knowing what threatens you, doesn't it prompt you to ask that question too? What must I do to be saved? The answer is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. To repent of your sins. To ask Jesus to forgive you. I would urge you to think of this passage to begin with in that way. Is this speaking about me? And if not, then ask the Lord to be your Savior. And he says then that these are your inheritance through faith in Jesus. An inheritance that cannot be taken away. And then think secondly about this question in the context of suffering. What does it mean for God to show you mercy? What does it mean about how you go through trials that you are born again? How can you meditate on your suffering in light of the living hope that you have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And to bring it back to those words that I began the sermon with, the words from Romans 8, What in the world can compare to the incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance that Jesus has reserved in heaven for you? Can anything compare to the salvation you have in Jesus Christ? Can anything steal it away? Can anything steal you away? I am persuaded, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Who has given us such a rich inheritance. Amen. God, we do respond saying you are worthy
to be worshipped and honored and glorified now and forevermore. Blessed be the Lord God, our salvation. Blessed be your name forever and ever. We thank you, O God, for this incomparable treasure that you have given to us. And today, may you receive our worship as we thank you for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's do just that. Let's sing and worship the Lord, saying, blessed be God our Savior. We'll do that using Psalm 103, Selection D. Please stand to sing.